Well, the title of this morning's sermon is A Mother's Teaching. A Mother's Teaching. And we'll see a little bit later that it comes from a proverb. And in Proverb, Proverbs 1.8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. But then it goes on to say, And forsake not your mother's teaching. So the title used to be Forsake Not Your Mother's Teaching, but it ends up being too long for them to put online. So it's a mother's teaching is our title here this morning. But what does it mean when you're talking about forsaking something? Well, to forsake is to abandon, to give up, to renounce, or leave behind someone or something. That's what it means to forsake a mother's teaching. And in that context, we're talking about leaving behind, abandoning, giving up, renouncing a mother's teaching. Sometimes that, in extreme cases, involves leaving behind the mother too, not just the mother's teaching. But you know, as you think about that in the negative concept, forsaking or context, forsaking a mother's teaching, leaving things behind, though, it's a natural part of maturing in general. So not everything we forsake is bad. As we grow up and as we mature, it's natural to leave certain things behind. In fact, Paul, he talks about leaving things behind. He's specifically talking about some of the foundational spiritual gifts and the development of the full canon of Scripture. So the context is a little off, but the the principle is true here. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when he says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought... As a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And that's the same concept there, that idea of forsaking. I put them away, I gave them up, I abandoned them, I renounced them, I left behind childish things. And so a natural part of maturing or growing up is to leave behind some things. And at times, it's very healthy for children to leave behind childish things and you could probably think of a lot of examples of childish things that are healthy and positive for a child to leave behind a few that popped to my mind maybe they wouldn't have been the ones that popped your mind eating your boogers it's good to leave that behind now some of you that are still booger eaters that's a good thing to leave behind not healthy throw how about throwing tantrums is that a good thing to leave behind You know, it's something that we all, unfortunately, are still a work in progress, uh, process. We should be leaving that behind. We still throw tantrums. We just do it differently. We look at toddlers and we say, oh, look at that. How goofy is that? And we're doing the same thing, but just with passive aggressive behavior and whatever else. We're we're a lot more subtle about it, but it's... It would be beneficial as you mature to leave behind temper tantrums, learn to trust the Lord more, learn to have a calm spirit, learn to be, uh, have patience. Another thing that popped into my mind is, of course, it's a positive thing to leave behind wedding beds and diapers. It's nice to have big boy pants. It's nice to be able to go through the day without having to be concerned about that. So there's some things that are, as you grow up, naturally you should leave behind. But other times, it's extremely harmful to leave behind positive things that young people have been taught and the loving people that taught those things, the loving people that actually care about them. 
And so unfortunately, one of the things that is harmful is when you talk about forsaking a mother's teaching, implied in that is the idea that the teaching would be positive, and we'll get to that in a second. And if you leave behind your loving, nurturing, caring mother in the sense that you can't make time for her anymore, or in the sense that you've allowed a root of bitterness to spring up in you so that you've distanced yourself from her in a way that you will not forgive, you will not move on, you will not, you will not rectify that or, or have the, allow the healing process to take place. And I'm not, I haven't lived your lives. I don't know what your mother's done to you. Maybe it was horrific. Maybe it was really, really bad. Maybe you're just not in a place where that's even on your radar as a possibility. But I would say in, in other people's circumstances, maybe it's more petty than that. It's smaller than that. It's something that if you're really honest with yourself and you really look into the depths of your heart about it, this thing that you've been holding against your mother, this thing that you've allowed to come between you and your mother is actually quite small. And you've ended up somewhat forsaking her and the things that she stands for, in fact, some of the th- all the things that she taught you even maybe, in an effort to distance yourself from her, you've distanced yourself from the positive things that she's tried to teach you. So that can be very, very negative too. And when it comes to the things that children are taught, mothers often do a lot of the teaching. So as you're thinking about mothers and celebrating mothers on a day that, you know, has been created, to be intentional about that. Honestly, you should be celebrating your mother every day just like you should be celebrating who you are in Christ every day. There's so many things that we don't do a very good job of being thankful for and grateful for throughout the year. We wait till very specific times to do it. But when it comes to the responsibility or the involvement in teaching you things, very often it is your mothers that have done a lot of the teaching. I know in my own life that that certainly was true. My, both of my parents contributed to me being who I am. All of the parental figures that were around me in my life contributed to who I am, the motherly types, the fatherly types, the, those that came alongside of me. Sometimes those are coaches and teachers, and there's other people that are involved in that process to some extent. But when it comes to my own, my own home, I had a stay-at-home mother. She spent a lot of time with me. She taught me a lot of things. And it's not to say that uh, I'm not trying to put a number on percentages of what she taught me versus what my dad has taught me over the years, but it was a lot. And so you think about the responsibility, though, that comes with that. You see, everyone who spends time with children, no matter who you are, but we're focused on mothering and motherly behavior today, women who are spending time with children, they are teaching children something. Children are like sponges. So if you're here and your children are grown, but you're still spending time with, rubbing elbows with, talking with, spending time in Sunday school classrooms, in the nursery, and at VBS, and at camp, and you're spending time as a woman in this church with young people, you're teaching them things. Now, you may not realize that or you may not know that. You don't have to have kids of your own to be teaching young people, to be mothering young people, to be mothering old people, to be coming alongside of people in a way where your interactions with them are actually passing along teaching or information to them. It's just that mothers spend more time with their children than most, so there's this great responsibility attached to it. And so as you're thinking about a mother's teaching, the first question that comes to mind is, what are you teaching them? And the second question is, would it benefit them to hold on to what you're teaching them. So what are you teaching them? 
And would it benefit them to hold on to those things that you're currently teaching them? Now remember, there's no age limit to this. If you're teaching anyone or involved as a, as a woman here today, we're focused on mothers. You're involved in the lives of people, now, however old they are. Are you teaching them something? The answer is yes. And is what you're teaching them worth holding on to? Because remember our title, Forsaking a Mother's Teaching. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. So that's what we're going to be looking at here today. We're going to look at mothering in general and what that involves. And then we're going to be looking at a positive and a negative example of a mother teaching her child. One is going to represent things that the mother is going to have taught that child that the child really should forsake. The, the child should renounce, should abandon, should let go of because it was in no way positive or godly or spiritually beneficial to that child. Then we're going to look at another example where that child had a positive interaction with his mother and is told, don't let go of this. Don't ever forsake this because those are the things that can actually give you life in time and, of course, in eternity in terms of the spiritual truth about the gospel, about who Jesus is and what he's done. So when we're thinking about mothering, we can, I want to define it. And I, I use the term mothering because there's a lot of people who are, have a nurturing, motherly type of a way of dealing with people around them. And you don't have to be a biological mother to be that way. So what is, what is mothering? Well, mothering is defined as any characteristic associated with being a mother, especially being caring, protective, and kind. So if you talk about mothering people that are around you, those are the qualities that we're talking about or characteristics we're talking about. Being caring, protective, and kind. And it takes a lot of different forms. There's a lot more to it than just that. But it's your care for people. It's your concern for people that causes you to then perhaps try to teach a principle, a spiritual principle, or teach a useful thing to a child or a person that God has put in your life. That's mothering. But what caused you to want to do that? Well, hopefully it started with the love of Christ constraining me or compelling you. That it's a response to God having shown how much he loves you. It's a response to his spirit then being free to work inside of you as you present yourself as a yielded instrument to him as you keep your eyes focused on him, the author and finisher of your faith. As a byproduct of his spirit working inside of you, hopefully he's given you a desire and a concern and a care and a compassion for the people that he's put in your life. And so when that reveals itself then through this caring interest in others, this protective interest or this kindness towards others, then we get into teaching. There's always going to be teaching associated with it. So then when you're thinking about mothering or this concept of mothering, because I didn't want to limit this just to those who actually have physical kids, there's a lot of ways to be involved, to be a good mother, to be effective at mothering the people that God has put in your life. Well, mothering can take various forms. So you have the obvious, a biological mother. So biological mothering I have there. And you see that this is a good thing. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a good thing. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. Many women here this morning fall into this category. And a few of them, very recently, I don't know if they're here this morning, but you know, some of you have very young children. You're, you're new to this. Some of you, it's your first child. Some of you, it's, well, there's another one. 
But children are a wonderful blessing for the Lord. From the Lord, they're a cause for celebration. Just remember that, mothers. Fathers, of course, have to remember that too. But we're, again, focused on mother, mothers this morning. Oh, you little cherub, I just love you so much. Oh, my little blessing from heaven. Isn't it true that you sometimes have to be reminded of that? There's times where you're going to be at your wit's end. There's times I remember, I remember Station and I with our, our first so many times we were just absolutely overwhelmed and out of our league, out of our element. But you need to be reminded that these are, these are treasures. They're, they're a blessing from the Lord. The other type of mothering, though, I'm just referring to it as substitute or surrogate mothering. So when you think about surrogate money, mothering, many other people in this church here this morning fall into this category, and that includes women that have biological children and women who don't. You can be both. You can be an actual biological mother to some and a surrogate or a substitute mother to others in the sense that you're involved in mothering a variety of different people that God has put in your life, remembering that, that different definition. Definition just involves caring, being protective and kind towards others that God has put around you. And so that involves many more people, uh, that definition here of a surrogate, surrogate mothering. And people are influenced and taught by many motherly figures in their lives. And I mentioned that just in passing here, but as I even grew up in this church family, the reality is that there were many mothers in this church family. And many of those mothers mothered me in different ways. They cared about me. They protected me in some ways. They had an interest in my well-being. They were kind to me. They picked up after me. <laughs> they tried to redirect me. I say tried. I don't, I, I don't know how successful, successful it is sometimes. It's frustrating when you're trying to reorient or redirect a, a child and they're stubborn but thank you for trying but there's many people within this faith family that were involved in that many Sunday school teachers that I had no doubt they genuinely loved me and cared about me and that's that's God's design for the local church is that a group of people would come together so that we could be more effective at serving the Lord as a community or a group of believers than we could be on our own. And so as you have all of these different people that influence or teach you, they're, they're involved in your life, it has nothing to do with negatively abdicating your responsibility as a parent. You know, some people take that the wrong way when you talk about the benefits or the blessing of having other people come alongside and, and try to nurture your kid, try to help your kid, try to speak some truth into the life of your kid, try to be there for your kid, care and love and have compassion for your kid. Some people, when you start talking about that, they start to take a negative, put a negative spin on it. No, that's not an invitation for you not to be a parent. No, that's not taking away from your responsibility and yours, which is yours alone, to raise that child up. But it's a blessing from the Lord that other loving people, believers, could come alongside and be a part of trying to contribute positively to your child's life. And I really, I can't understand that perspective at all, actually. But it's a natural byproduct, product, byproduct of living life as a community that other people will be involved in your life. They'll invest in your lives. They'll be beneficial 
to your lives and that's true in almost everyone's life. And so there's a few biblical examples I wanted to somewhat briefly just point you to of this happening or being referred to anyway, even in the Bible. Now, the first one is this here. This is the Apostle Paul speaking in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. That, there's nothing more that I know about this other than what's written here. But I, think, I thought it was a fascinating verse when I came across it. Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, what else does he say, though? Also his mother. Now, I think this line is just fascinating. This is the definition of mothering here. Who has been a mother to me as well. That's a beautiful piece of scripture right there. And you're thinking about, you're saying that you can act in a motherly way to others. You can, you can be a spiritual benefit to them. You can have a nurturing, loving, positive influence on other people that aren't your own biological children. And Paul here is an adult. They don't have to be children at all. I mean, a, children, a child is still a child when they're 40. A child is still somebody's child when they're in their 90s, right, Alice? You're still a child in the sense that there's people that you want to come alongside of and have that mothering kind of a concern and compassion and nurture towards you. And so that's how Paul felt about it, and I thought that was a really nice verse. Now, this is, that's, I don't know how many of you knew that already. That was new to me. This one's a little less um, obscure. This one is more well-known. This is an example of a mother-in-law who is having a very positive impact on her daughter-in-law, whose husband has now passed away. So the mother's son passed away, and there's this ongoing relationship now with this daughter-in-law, who is not biologically connected to Naomi at all. And so let's read this section of it. Ruth 1.16 says this. So what had happened is Naomi had two sons that were both married. They, one, the, other's name was, the other wife's name was Orpah, I believe. And though Ruth and Orpah were married to Naomi's two sons. They both died, so Naomi's husband also died. So Naomi is now going to go back to where she's from. These girls are of a different culture. They're from a different place. Their family is in that place, and they have no family or structure or support network. They have none of that where Naomi is from. So Naomi starts to go back and she says, you know, you have no obligation to me. Go back to your own family. Start, start your lives over again. You've, you've fulfilled whatever responsibility you had to me. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. And, and so she entreated them to just go back. You don't have to, in a sense, waste the rest of your life being focused or concerned about me. But this speaks to how tight that bond must have been between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, because Ruth's response to that, and I inserted the to, to Naomi there, but Ruth's response was this, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And you think about that. It's not recorded. We don't know how did they get to have that kind of a bond. And I don't, it it doesn't do us any good to speculate 
too much about it. But something happened there in that relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-law that this is the response that Ruth had to her. Now, you could assign all of that to Ruth as just a very caring individual. Ruth was just a very loyal individual. But I think that would be wrong. I, I think it would be wrong to put all of that on Ruth. I think you'd have to, I think any reasonable assumption here would be that they had developed a bond that was very, very strong, and Ruth didn't want to be separated from Naomi anymore. But there's a biblical example of surrogate mothering. Another very powerful one is in the book of John when Jesus is on the cross and his mother is standing nearby. And Jesus knows that he's going to die. And he says to John, we don't know that for sure because it says the disciple that Jesus loved. But John refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. So it's presumed that it's John. But Jesus looks at him before he dies and he says, you, John, this is now your mother. And he looks at his own mother and he says, this man here, John, that's now your son. And there's that idea of surrogacy or substitution there where I want, mom, I want you to have this concern for this one that I love so much. And the one I love so much, son, I want you to take over and have that concern for my mother. And we don't know. It just says from that day on he took, he took, him to his own, he took her to his own home. Nobody knows what came of that. But there's an example, just another, I guess I'm belaboring the point, but bringing out this idea that there's this, there's this mothering that takes place biologically and then there's just mothering that takes place in general and it's a very beautiful thing and it's found throughout Scripture. Now a few other general principles before we get into our two specific examples this morning of just things associated with mothering or mothers. And the one of them is this. Mothers should teach their children about the things of faith. So we can't look at a positive and a negative example of that without looking at the responsibility in general. Mothers should teach their children about the things of faith. And you think, of course, this is both parents' responsibility, but we're talking about mothers again this morning. And the question you should ask is, who else is in a better position to do this? When you're thinking about Teaching children. So if you're going to be involved in mothering people, we're, we're talking about children, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of narrow it down to that, but remembering that I'm talking about just mothering in general in some, in some ways here today. But when you're teaching children, who else is in a better position to do this than you, their very own mother? That's sobering. I know that's sobering to think of that in the reverse, not the reverse, but in the correlating fatherly perspective. That's a great that's a great responsibility. And the church family or the community here at church is here to assist you in that but not replace you. And so a lot of people think that they're checking off this box of teaching their children about the things of faith that they've met that responsibility by making sure that they bring their kids to Sunday school. I'm here to tell you that is not meeting that responsibility. So much more is going to have to go into it. Some of it is going to be actions, attitudes, example. Some of it is going to be actual t- 
teaching and training, actual words that are spoken, devotions and verse learning, and things like that that are going to be necessary to your child developing in the things of faith the way that they ought to. Now, I'll tell you what, you've gone a long way, or you've helped them a lot by getting them to as many events as you, as you can, because the desire, of, the desire of everyone in this church, not all, everyone's attitude isn't perfect all the time, including my own, but the underlying desire or goal or objective of this church is to minister to the, the needs of the saints. Much of that involves teaching the word of God and teaching biblical principles and teaching the truth about who God is and what he's done and what his plan is for our lives to everybody who's a part of this, whether they're young or they're old. That is absolutely true. And so each time you do bring them here, it's an opportunity for that to happen. And will that always lead to any earth-shattering changes in your child's thinking or development? No, it won't. Some of them are sitting in Sunday school this morning, just mind is completely somewhere else. Some of them are sitting here in the auditorium this morning, (laughs) and their mind is completely somewhere else. Some of you are doing that too. Shame on you. The point is that the church is here to help you, but don't think that that in and of itself represents bringing your child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which we'll get to in a second. So when you talk about instruction, you're giving your children a lot of instruction, but here we're focused on instruction about matters of faith. So obviously you're teaching them to brush their teeth, change their underwear, whatever other things will be beneficial to them, make their beds, pick up their rooms, and whatever else. But when it comes to things of faith, motherly figures have that, should, that should be their focus. That should be the thing that they're most interested in. I want to remind you, we've covered this, we've been going through Deuteronomy on Wednesday nights, but we covered this not too long ago. You can go look at, there's chapters that are assigned to different messages. If you want to just hear the message about this, you can. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, This is instruction given to all of the nation of Israel. That would include mothers and fathers. So as this instruction was given by Moses as inspired by God himself to the nation of Israel about the things that would matter most, the things that they ought to put the highest priority on within their home. This is a very home-oriented kind of a thought. It, It involves raising up the next generation. It involves being that light into the lives of your own children. Well, this is what Moses said, starting in verse 4. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now catch this, you shall teach them. This is a very hard word. This is a scary word. This is a sobering word. This is the kind of word that should give us pause. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You're like, man, it's Mother's Day. We're supposed to be celebrating. I didn't come here to be convicted. We shall teach them diligently to your children. We shall talk of them. And now there's going to be a list given. I think it's a really funny list in the sense that it's a really long-winded way of saying we should talk about them all of the time. But we'll read it anyway. You shall talk of them, these things of faith. You shall talk of these things when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise up, 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And those specific words, of course, were focused on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The, the things of faith that God needs to be first and foremost in your life, child. And then the second one that Jesus speaks of is, and then you should love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the other prophets, all of the other commandments, all the other laws can be contained under the umbrella of these two. But we should speak of them without stopping. It's a full-time job. And when you think about this, teaching your children about the things of faith diligently, it can't be done accidentally. It can't be done unintentionally. It has to be done with intentionality. We have to be doing it on purpose. We have to be being methodical and thoughtful about it. And this is the thing that is most scary to me as a parent. Your kids are going to develop views about spiritual things with or without you. Your children are going to develop views about spiritual things. This is true of the world around them too. Other things as well. But about spiritual things with or without you. And I've heard parents say just absolutely mind-blowing things like, I don't want to brainwash my children. I'm going to wait till they're older so that they can make their own decision about these things. You're making a decision for them then when they're young because by the time they are older, they already will have been brainwashed. Just not with the truth of God's word. They'll have been taught and they'll have been wrestled into submission by the things of the world around them the thinking of the world around them, the perspectives of the world around them. Satan isn't going to put it on pause until this, some neutral ground happens when they're older and then says, only now we'll allow this equal, this equal back and forth to take place so that the child can then make up their own mind, so to speak. That's not how the Bible presents it at all. He says, from the, from the time they are born, teach them diligently about the things of faith. And all that same time, the evil one is going to be trying to deceive them with the thinking and the teaching of the world around them. So the only way that it, it is even in any way giving them a fair opportunity to choose the things of faith is if you're presenting the things of faith because the enemy will not cease and he'll be presenting his proclaimed or professed truth from the day they're born. So that's a sobering thing sobering thing to think about. I can't wait. I can't be negligent in this because they're going to be taught something with or without me. I better make sure that I'm a part of determining what it is that I'm teaching them and be intentional about that. So, I mean, we think about how goofy that is. What do you think their views are going to be without any divine viewpoint, without any spiritual input from you? So then the question becomes this. Are you being prayerful about that? It starts there. Are you praying, Lord, help me to be the type of mother or mother figure in people's lives that you want me to be? Use me to speak your truth in the lives of my own children or the people that you've put around me for me to mother, to care about, to be kind to, to be protective toward. Pray that that could be my mind. Give me 
Give me your priorities. Give me your direction. Give me your words. Help me to speak your life into the lives of the people that you've put around me. So are you praying about that? Are you being intentional and thoughtful about this? Are you just letting time pass by? And I'm I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm just saying that we forget what's behind. We press forward. But as we press forward, can we do it with intentionality? Can we do it with thoughtfulness? Can we do it with a dependence on God and, and saying, Lord, I need you to help me make some improvements or put a higher focus on some of these things in the lives of the people that you've put around me? Now, the next point is that teaching during formative years has a lasting impact. I couldn't fit it all there, so I just have the impact of teaching during formative years. But teaching during formative years, it has a lasting impact. And this is true positively, and this is true negatively. Because that training that happens at a formative years, it's foundational. It's much harder to forsake things that were internalized at an early age. A lot of what your kids learn when they're very young will stick with them for a long time. Part of it is because they were so open to learning those things. It was such a foundational, they were so malleable in those years. And so what is taught then is something that they're very likely to have it's very likely to have more impact on their lives. Well, again, though, this can be good and this can be bad. So the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go so that when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's impact that is had through formative year training as it relates to the Word of God and there's great value in it. But if this is true on the spiritual side of it, on the positive side of it. Unfortunately, it's also true on the negative side of it. The things that children are learning from you on the negative side of the column during their formative years, they're gonna be hard, that's going to be hard for them to overcome too. Now, with God, there's nothing that's impossible. Uh, they still have personal accountability to the Lord. They're responsible for how they live their lives. We do not, some of you who, have their, your, your kids are gone, uh, it's not a time to look back. They, I would have, should have, could have. That ship's already sailed. Now you just pray for them. You pray for them. You, you parent them as an adult the best that you can. You try to have a positive influence on them right now in their lives. But the reality is pretty much any parent could identify a few characteristics of their child that is just straight from you. And I'm talking about negative characteristics. <laughs> My wife, when she spots some of those things, she'll say, that's you. That's you there. That one's your fault. But you watch them become a little bit too much mini-me's, mini uh, unfortunately, with some of the negative stuff too. So, but the point of this verse is give them the good stuff too. Give them the positive things from the Word of God that they can hold on to that will carry them through their lives. Well, the next thing, general principle, just about mothering or teaching in general is that teaching involves discipline. And it's difficult. Discipline is not fun. It's not pleasant for anyone involved in it. It shouldn't be, but it's needed. Discipline is always motivated by love. Discipline is necessary to help instruct and to train a child. They have to be corrected. I have a few children that I've run into at various points in my life that have never been corrected. Have you ever run into those kind of folks? 
They're not pleasant. They're not too fun to be around. They're not very malleable. They're not very easy to work with. <laughs> a few people are, are, are laughing and smiling. Uh, sometimes you see that in yourself. Not, not of all of us were corrected enough. And the reality is God can still fix that. He can still change that. He's in the business of changing. He's in the business of making new. He's in the business of molding. He's in the business of con- transforming. That's the business that he's in. There's nothing about you that God can't transform because he's saying, I want to put to death those characteristics about you and I want what's left of you to be directed and be, uh, be led by my spirit working in you. The thing that I want to make you into, which is different than what you were to begin with. So don't lose hope. Just keep being prayerful about that and give those things over to him too. But when you're thinking about discipline, the other thing that I wanted to just mention very briefly was just creativity when it comes to discipline is often overlooked. So I know some of you are young parents. Some of you have very little children. Uh, One of the things that I wish I had known more or had more insight into, I'm not, this isn't a biblical principle. This is just me speaking this. I wish I had used more creativity and been a little bit more thoughtful on the early end with my children. This idea that one size doesn't fit all. Every kid is unique and they're different and they have different personalities and they respond to different things differently. Your objective is to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your objective in discipline is to change their thinking, to change their behavior, to instruct them and teach them that the path they're on right now is not going to be good for them. It's not going to be helpful for them. So what worked for your first child won't necessarily work for your second child. And so be creative. Talk to other people about it. Try to think about what are some other avenues that might be effective that aren't working right now. Pray about it. Uh, Don't get down and be in despair about it because that's something that's very difficult for young parents sometimes is that they uh, they use all the tools that they're aware of but sometimes it's not enough and it doesn't have the outcome that they're looking for. So that's just a passing thing. Be creative. Be prayerful. Talk to other people. Don't try to just go through that on your own. But here's the principle from Proverbs 29. Here's the biblical support for it. Verses 15 and 17. The rod and rebuke, so to correct, we were talking about correction, they give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight to your soul. You're not, you're not harming your child to take the time to discipline them. You are doing them a favor. You are doing for them what God needs them to learn, that they have to see that they're wrong at times, that they need to change their thinking and they need to organize themselves under the direction of somebody who knows more than they do. If they can't learn that from you, how are they going to learn to see that relationship with their Heavenly Father that way? That there's one seeking to direct my paths and seeking to direct every facet of my life who knows more than me is infinitely more qualified to lead my life than I am. How are they ever going to have that kind of a relationship with a heavenly father they cannot see if they can't learn that or you can't teach them that in a loving and nurturing way in your own home? You're going to set them up for a very difficult life and God could still show them that. He can still, he can still work with that. The point isn't that he can't. The point is that it falls on you to bless your children through teaching them those things while you have the chance 
to do that. Now, the next principle as we're talking about a mother's teaching, it's sort of obvious, but children should heed their mother's instruction. So if a mother should, do te- should be involved in teaching a child the things of faith, if that teaching has a lasting impact, that teaching that takes place during those formative years, if that teaching involves correction and discipline, well, then children should heed their mother's instruction because it's intended to benefit them. But the Bible teaches this principle very directly here in Proverbs 1.8. It says, hear, my son, your father's instruction. And then here's where we get the title, or this is what... In- inspired me to do this message and forsake not your mother's teaching don't do that child it won't be beneficial to you to forsake your mother's teaching now indirectly the bible also teaches that just by as a byproduct of obeying and honoring your mother respecting your honor your mother and so here's some verses about that ephesians 6 1 and 2 most of you are familiar with it but children obey your parents in the lord For this is right. Honor your father and mother. Are you honoring your father and mother when you won't listen to the direction that they give you? That's the first commandment with promise. Now, for what purpose, though? Some young people, some old people who are still God's children, old people that are God's children, do you realize that God's instruction, his direction in your life, it's not intended as a negative thing. It's intended as a positive thing for you, and it's stated right here. Honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. It will be beneficial to you. And then here we have this idea of even respect. Proverbs 15.20 says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Children should heed the instruction and the teaching of their mother. Obviously, both their parents, they're inseparable, but again, we're talking about mothers here this morning. But here's something that's interesting. If a child should heed a mother's instruction and implied in that is that it's godly, good instruction, but a child should obey regardless. But the focus here is on the positive benefit to a child of heeding the godly training and teaching of his mother. But this is an obvious statement, but your children can't forsake positive teaching unless you've first provided it. They can't forsake these foundational and vital instruction instructions in righteousness, instructions about the things of faith, instructions about spiritual principles, they can't forsake something you've never taught them. So do not forsake your mother's teaching. That isn't even possible if you haven't taught them. And I think that's, you know, should be obvious, but it's something that I mentioned. You have to first do the teaching. Now let's get to our actual examples as we finish up the back part of this message. The teaching of a mother, it can be positive and it can be negative. So if the point here is do not forsake a mother's teaching, isn't there some teaching that's worth forsaking like we started out with? Well, yeah. And is there some teaching that you should never forsake because it represents God's viewpoint? And the answer, of course, is yes, that's true also. But let's look at the negative example first. And that's the negative example of Rebecca. 
Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. I know we haven't done hardly any page turning. Genesis 27. We're going to look at this example here. And this isn't a, this is a moment in time as it relates to Rebecca's life. This isn't in any way trying to suggest that Rebecca never taught her children anything that was godly, that she never taught Jacob anything good. Uh, but here we have a point where what she was teaching was something that he really, throughout his life, would have to learn to forsake. And ultimately, I don't know that he ever did. There's not a lot of evidence that he did. But we're going to pick up this section here at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. So Genesis chapter 27, verse 1. Now, I want to give you a little bit of back's story because some of you maybe don't even know who I'm talking about when I'm talking about Rebecca. So you have, you have the story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, the patriarch of the, of the nation of Israel. They have a son named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have two twin sons. Their names are Jacob and Esau. So most of you know that, but if, if you didn't, that's the, the build up to it. So we are talking about some of the key figures in the Old Testament here. A lot of times you'll hear them referred to as the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And, and that's the way they're put because they're, they're key figures in the storyline of the Messiah that is carried through the nation of Israel and it's carried through the Old Testament, the Redeemer, the story of the redemption that would one day come through the person and work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But that's the buildup. Now, for, for the rest of you, obviously you know that up to chapter 27 here, we're now talking about this story that's going to involve Jacob having swindled his twin brother Esau out of both his birthright and his blessing. So Jacob is going to come to be known as Jacob the Swindler. You think about what you want to be known for. <laughs> Old Jacob in the Bible here is Jacob the Swindler. You think, man, I hope that's not how I'm known. But it was for good reason. He, was in, he had a mentality that was catered to by his mother, we're going to see here, that wanted to take advantage or use circumstances to gain an advantage over others. And that's not a selfless perspective. That's a self-centered and selfish perspective. That's not, that's not grace. That's not mercy. That's not love. That's not compassion. That's not caring for people, wanting to get an advantage at the cost or expense of somebody else, in this case, his own twin brother. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing that that's how it went. But Rebecca's influence in teaching is front and center in these traits that Jacob becomes known for. And let's pick up in verse 1 here. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old. Oh, also I, I want to say that he had already sort of swindled Esau out of his birthright. Now we're just going to be talking about the blessing. That had occurred through some foolishness on the part of Esau. There's always more than one side to it. But it was also an opportunistic Jacob taking advantage of a circumstance for his own benefit uh, and doing it to somebody that he should have loved and cared for and had a protective mentality towards, but he did not. Now here we go. Now we're going to be talking about the stolen blessing. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son... And he answered him, Here I am. Then Jacob said, Behold, now I am old. 
I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. Not funny how she says that, huh? Esau, his son. They're twin boys. <laughs> And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, so whose, whose idea is this? Rebekah's. Obey my voice. This is teaching going on here. Obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from, the two, from there two choice kids of goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may bless it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. You see, his objection isn't that this would be wrong. His objection is, let's talk logistics. How can we pull this off? So they're both, they're both in on this. Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and, shall seem to, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, exactly what you are. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. There we have it again. And go, get them for me. And he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck to make him more hairy. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to the father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Now this is just... It shows how far Jacob's mind and thinking was off under the influence of his mother. And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. How blasphemous is that, that the God would ever be involved in deceit like this. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? Another chance to do what's right. And Jacob said, He said, I am. He said, Bring it near to me. 
and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, of the plenty of the grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. And that's where we'll stop. The reality is, what a story. And as you look at that and you see this negative example of teaching, this negative spiritual impact that a mother can have on their child, this stuck with Jacob. The reality is, in, in many ways, as you seek to find a lot of high points in Jacob's life, there's not that many. You might be able to you know, finagle a couple out of that, but by and large, he was not a man that had the kind of faith of his father Isaac or the kind of faith of his grandfather Abraham. And it's something that you have to look at some of this interaction with his mother and his mother's influence on him commanding and saying, obey me and do this. As he, instead of becoming a man that's known as being a man of faith, a man of uprightness, a man of integrity, a man of honesty, he becomes known as Jacob, the chiseler, the deceiver, the swindler. All those different words are associated with his name. And so when you think about the lasting impact of this influence that you can have on your children, it's stuck with, it's stuck with Jacob. So on a more positive note, let's look at a positive example. And this is the example of Eunice and Lois. And this is going to be 2 Timothy. You can turn there. 1 verses 2 through 5. I have it up on the screen for those of you who maybe don't have a Bible with you. I didn't put the last one up there because it was so long. But there's positive example of how the teaching of a mother can impact their child in a way that sticks with them, in a way that that child does not forsake and should not forsake. Jacob should have forsaken the teaching of his mother as it related to this ungodly, unrighteous behavior. He should have forsaken that. But forsake not the teaching of your mother. There's examples of godly teaching that should not be forsaken that has this lasting positive influence on a child. And this is a much shorter section here because there's not a lot that is recorded about it. We have to just take what we can from it. But 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 starts with this. To Timothy, this is Paul writing, My dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. What a great, what a great greeting. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. I'm really missing you. And of course, Paul, as you know, in the context, he's waiting for his execution. He's already been tried and found guilty. He knows that his life is going to come to an end. So he's writing this letter to this one that he's, he's treated as a son in the faith. There's surrogate parenting there from Paul toward Timothy. And there's, of course, the equivalent we've been talking about, surrogate parenting or mothering. In any event, back to the passage. Now he says, I'm... F- 
that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance. What fills me with joy? When I call to remembrance or I remember the unfeigned faith, so the not fake faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. So you're thinking about this passage. Here you have this opportunity to pass something along of spiritual value of lasting positive influence and impact to your child. And here we're talking about the things of faith, the unfeigned faith that was passed along from one generation to the next to the next. We have three generations here that are being mentioned. And the first obvious thing you have to note is you can't pass along something you don't first have for yourself. So it was impossible for Lois to pass this on to Eunice and for Eunice to pass this on to Timothy unless they had this faith first. So until you are a woman of faith, a mother of faith, you can't pass along motherly faith-centric things to the next generation or to others in your life. So that's to begin with. Now, unfeigned faith, he's talking to somebody who already is a believer. So he's talking about living the Christian life, ongoing faith, second tense Christian faith is what I think he has in mind there more than anything. That faith that is being acted upon as God works in that individual's life through the power of his spirit. And as that's happening, that faith becomes an example for the next generation. That faith becomes an example as a grandmother for the generation after that. And so then, because that faith is present to begin with, it can be passed along. It dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and now it dwells in you. We're talking about multi-generational faith. And you talk about positive family traditions. What family traditions are you passing along? Is it something that is good but not has nothing to do with the things of faith? Those are good traditions to have. You know, some families have all kinds of positive and fun traditions that have been passed down. They're not, they're not bad, they're good, but they not, have nothing to do with spiritual life either. In my wife's family, it's making lefsa. And if I never saw a rolled up ball of potatoes again, I'd be fine, I'd be fine with it. For some of you, it's a different tradition. That can be good, but how about a tradition of faith? How about a tradition of godliness? How about, how about a tradition of letting the Lord make changes in your life? How about a tradition of humility? How about a tradition of admitting when you're wrong? How about a tr- tradition of saying, yet not I, but Christ? Those are the traditions that are worth passing along, and you see it in this verse. What a legacy. You know, leaving a legacy of hard work, that's good. Leave a legacy of financial wherewithal, They might be happy for that too. But leave behind a legacy of faith. That's what God is after. That's what this is bringing out in this passage. Now what was the lasting impact? So we talked about the lasting impact on Jacob of not being that example. What was the lasting impact on Timothy? And I'm not going to go into it a lot. But he talks about this unfeigned faith that is in thee also. Well, well, what was that? I'm going to show you one passage here that 
talks about the, the long-term ramifications of this investment that grandmother Lois and mother Eunice made in, in younger Timothy. This was the impact. If you look at Philippians 2, 19 through 23, it says this. Paul is talking to these Philippian believers. He's saying, I hope I can come see you. But in the meantime, I want to send a surrogate. I want to send somebody in my place. But he's going to say, there's not enough people that want to serve the Lord that are even available for me to send. The fields are white and ready to harvest, but the laborers are few. That's the problem. So that's what he gets at here. And he's going to say, but there's one exception to that dearth of volunteers, that dearth of that complete absence of people who are wanting to serve the Lord enough that I could, fa- I could send them knowing that they would be faithful to put a higher value on Jesus Christ and serving him than themselves. There's one guy, one guy I could send. Let's read about it. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus, Timotheus, but we're talking about Timothy here, uh, just another way of saying that. Timotheus, shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. No man but who? But Timothy. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently as soon as I shall see how it will go with me. What what a thing to say about the long-term impact of a faithful grandmother and a faithful mother. Here's one who has been serving with me in the gospel, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel, preaching the good news of the gospel. And that was the lasting impact of that positive influence of grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. So the question we started out with was, would it benefit your child to hold on to what you are teaching him or her? Would it actually benefit them to hold on to that? Well, God wants to use mothers and those who are mothering others to teach positive spiritual truths. Of course, every single mother knows that there are some things that her child is going to learn from her that should be forsaken. The fact of the matter is that we're imperfect. We're flawed. We haven't been glorified yet. There are times when we get it right and there's times we do not. There's times we're walking by means of the Spirit and there's times when we're walking under the influence of the flesh. So it's impossible to avoid completely. That's not the point. The point is, do you have a desire and a goal to teach your children things that they should never forsake? To pass along things that that will have lasting value in their lives? And then as a children, the few of you that are here or those of you who are older and there's people coming alongside of you in a motherly way trying to pass along truth to you, are you willing to take that in? Are you willing to know that that will benefit you? to trust God's plan and his blueprint and know that you'll be better off if you will heed that godly wisdom and advice instead of rejecting it. So do not forsake your mother's teaching. May that be true 
of all of us, especially when it comes to the teaching that was focused and centered on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time to celebrate mothers. Thank you that we could do that here together as a part of a family of faith. Pray that you would just allow mothers to enjoy their special day and that uh, you would just undertake in everyone's lives that they would keep their eyes focused on you and that we could live lives that would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.